Hey, My Mom's Basement listeners, you can find our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Hello and welcome to My Mom's Basement, presented by 3G and Barstool Sports. I am your host, Robbie Fox, and today I am coming at you with a special interview-packed show. First up is Trish Stratus, possibly my first crush. It was either her or Padme Amidala. And then we'll get into an interview with David Desmalchin, who you know from the Suicide Squad as Polka Dot Man, from Prisoners, from The Dark Knight as one of the Joker's goons that Harvey Dent winds up interrogating. He's been in so much. He was in Dune. He's going to be in Oppenheimer. Truly inspiring guy. Great chat with him. And then lead singer and frontman of Bush, Gavin Rossdale, joins me to talk about his entire writing and recording process, the new Bush album, the funniest rock star who he's ever met, which will surprise you, and more. First, before we get into this, let me tell everyone about 3Chi. Of all the things in life, one of the best has to be getting high wherever you want, whenever you want, without the paranoia of consuming some sketchy black market stuff. What's the best way to do that? With 3Chi, of course. 3Chi has the highest quality cannabis products from their delicious Delta 9 edibles and their industry-leading Delta 8 products, which basically invented the industry, to their new line of Delta 9 O-Vapes and everything in between. When you buy 3Chi, you know you're getting the highest quality and purity, taste, and that craveability potent buzz every single time. And I love it. All of these products are formulated by a biochemist made in the USA with USA-grown hemp. And you can taste the thought and care that they put into it. Because, oh my God, from the gummies to the root beer taffies to the eight balls candies to the cereal bar treats and everything in between, the cookies, the brownies, all of it. It tastes amazing. It feels amazing. It's the best in the industry. My Mom's Basement listeners will get an exclusive 15% off discount on all of 3Chi's premium THC products by going to 3Chi.com and using the promo code BASEMENT15, BASEMENT15, to take 15% off your order. So that is BASEMENT, all caps, 15. Must be 21 or older to purchase. Please use responsibly. Now let's get into this interview with Trish Stratus. Hello and welcome back to My Mom's Basement, ladies and gentlemen. It is Robbie Fox, and I am here with WWE Hall of Famer, Trish Stratus, ahead of WWE Rivals. Finally, we're getting Alita and Trish Stratus documentary almost. not Well, it's the full Rivals episode on A&E, not documentary. It's a little bit of everything, right? Thank you for doing this, Trish. Thank you for being here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that, That that uh, especially the timing of this episode, right? So it's coming out right as we're rolling into WrestleMania on the road to WrestleMania. Um, and so like, I think, you know, I want to call us the OGs, but some do. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, to, uh, so to be able to see, you know, the history unfold and really see the struggle, the journey, like, you know, what we did together um, and then have us, you know, to have this WrestleMania moment together is uh, is really special and just the timing of it couldn't be any better. Yeah, and with WWE Rivals, we just had Freddie Prince Jr. on our movie podcast here at Barstool. And we were asking him about what rivalries could actually make a cool cinematic movie and everything. And this was the first one he brought up. He was like, Trish and Lita, oh my God, that was a rivalry for the ages. It's one that I truly grew up with and I'm glad that we're going to get this finally, the, the Rivals episode. Obviously, I feel like the Raw main event, you probably get asked that all the time. That's the big match that everyone talks about for good reason. It was a historic, iconic main event in Raw history. Do you have a favorite match that, that's not that main event with Lita? Oh, gosh, yeah, our, our uh, my, my, my retirement match, you know, my 
I'll say retirement now because obviously, but um, <laughs> uh, no, that to me was, uh, you know, because it was like a perfect bookend to our career, to our time together, to our parallel, to the rivalry. You know, it really was a perfect conclusion, so to speak, right? Um, we be- began around the same time. We ran parallel our, our entire careers uh, with a rivalry that is still talked about today and even documentaries and on television now, uh, 23 years later. Um, but like then it concluded with, you know, Lita and Trish facing off my retirement match in a women's championship match. I mean, you couldn't, you, it, you couldn't write it a better ending for us and for the rivalry itself. So yeah, that one, and it was, that was full of emotions, bittersweet moment because I was leaving the business I loved, but also leaving it for my, you know, friends and family who were also in attendance. Like it was just everything about that, that match it had, it had all the, all the good stuff. Yeah. And we know that you guys obviously had a very bitter rivalry on screen for years, but we also know that behind the scenes, you guys are very close friends. Did you guys form that friendship right away when you met? Did you click right away? We did. Um, I think it was because, you know, and we, we had, we had been connected by the phone, um, before we both, uh, debuted. So, cause I was kind of like, so, uh, have you, are you training? Like, what, what are you, what are you, they got you doing over there? What about, are you ahead of me? In other words, <laughs> you know, she of course had the traditional, more traditional upbringing, you know, with the independence and in and, and, and Mexico and, and of course ECW. And I was like, I had trained a few months at the gym in Toronto that's all I had, <laughs> you know, so obviously I learned and my training was not traditional. It was learn as I went on television. Yay. Uh, yay for me. Um, but, um, so, but we talked about like in the very beginning, how we were both beginning. Um, and we talked, hi, oh, my, my daughter's coming to say hi. We, we were talking about, <laughs> did you want to say hi to Robbie? Robbie, this is Maddie. She's been What's busy. up, Maddie? She's been making some crafts. We have a unicorn. Oh, nice. Right, we've got a unicorn. We've got a bunny. Is <laughs> have March break? Is it is it happening over there? Yeah. Kids right now, yeah. So thank you for fitting it in. This is part of the juggle, you know. Coming back full time wrestling, but also being a mom. Like back in the day, I didn't have to juggle. It was just me, right? Um, but yeah, we we were like we we hit it off, you know, because we're like, oh my god, we have this neat opportunity. We're we're starting the WWE soon, right? Um, and then we right away, people were like, there's this. Thing, right there's this intangible between Trish and Lita when they get in the ring people are interested because they represent different things they look different they feel different they have a different vibe right and and, and at home there's the Trish fan and there's a the Trish Stratus uh, and then Lita fan you know what I mean there's definitely oh, yes. a, a distinct fan yeah, yes, yes. um and so um so I think we recognized that early on and and we weren't the only ones it was the fans recognized it but also like the boys right and we worked with you know like TNA and Hardy where Hardys were like Oh, they are going to wait for this moment that you guys get to each other. Let's make them wait for it or let's not make them wait. You know, whatever it was we were doing psychology-wise, um, it definitely was something we, it was a tool that we had in our back pocket that we could use the Trish Lita moment. Um, but then to see it play out, like as we kept going, you know, whatever point we were, good guy, bad guy, different storylines, whenever we cross paths, there was a little something, something there. Um, and then the cool thing is, I think like, you know, you talked about how, and like, you know, Lita had the traditional upbringing, right? When she had the injury with her back, that's when things started to kind of happen for the women, right? Like, you know, I was there basically, like I said, learning as I went in a feud with Molly and Jazz and Victoria and Mickey James and, and really being able to hone my craft and like, you know, get to the point where now you have these two characters, the Trish and Lita characters, but what about now they can actually physically go in the ring and, you know, deliver the aspect of the product, which is what the guys do, so to speak. And um, now what will we bring? And so there was, a, it was, it added a different element to us, what we could deliver as characters on the show. Uh, and then it played out the way it did. And it was, it was magical. Speaking of training on the fly and learning on the fly in the business, 
seemed like you got so, so good at wrestling so quick. Like it was like a year and a half from your debut to the match with Victoria at Survivor Series that everyone loves talking about still to this day. What was that unseen work that you were putting in when you weren't on TV? Because we saw just you on TV get exponentially better very quickly. What was that work like? How were you getting training hours in when you're on the road? Yeah, it was... um... I mean, at every opportunity, whenever there was a ring up, I was in it. Um, I would get to the build, and you know, you people read it and they've heard the stories. But like, I would get to the ring as soon as the build, the ring was put up in the building for TV days. I was in it for for, for live events. I was in the ring before with anyone who would anyone want to can someone help help me help me, <laughs> you know. And I had you know amazing people working with me. Of course, Stanley was one of them. But I had Regal. He was a huge. You know, he was so great about like making me do a hundred Hindu squats first, by the way, <laughs> and then get in the ring, you know, and then Lance Storm, right? Having his, uh, bringing his brain into it was so amazing, right? And and having me be like, okay, guys, I saw this thing on Mortal Kombat. So she went like this and she flipped over and then her feet, and like, it literally was a move I saw Mortal Kombat. Like, Can I do that? Is that possibly to physically do that in the ring? And then, you know, I was able to do that and helping me realize these things, right? And making them into real life, um, that was what it was. I mean, but, you know, also being paired with something, you know, being with Lita um, and knowing that like she brought a certain something, she brought a level of excellence of what she did. I never wanted to, as we say, shit the bed. Right. So I wanted to go in and be able to, if I couldn't match her in, you know, ring ability, let me bring the performance. Let me bring the character. Let me bring what I can bring to make this, you know, segment, right. To make this, this is the moment we were given. This is the amount of minutes we we're being given. Let's make it amazing, like memorable. And, and so they'll give us more minutes is the ultimate goal. Right. Um, but yeah, um, I, I just learned as I went. And then there was that learning curve of like, you're being paired with Vince. He is your boss. So you've got to do really good every time. So every time you go out, nail that segment next time, nail it, do better than last time, do better. That became my MO was do better than last time. Just do better than last time. And um, yeah. And I was luckily given the opportunity to, I mean, that meant 300 days of the year. Was I working? Yes. Was I on every house show? Was I on live events? Was I on, you know, everything? I mean, I think Natty recently broke my record on the amount of Raws I was on. And I'm like, mm, and I did that in, you know, six years or something. Right. So yeah. it was intense intense schedule but like learning every second I was out there and just like a sponge you know taking it all in and really maximizing as much as I could did you feel burnout in your career sure did yeah I, I did um and I, I honestly I feel like sometimes the universe was there for me like when I was starting to feel it an injury would happen and is that a coincidence I don't know you know your body is vulnerable at certain times because you, everything's not quite you know in, in place and those injuries in a way saved me. Like, like luckily they weren't like career threatening, um, but to, to be able to step away for those, those couple months or whatever, and number of things, right? Recover the body. Um, I also love the fact that I could go back home and watch the product as a fan again. That gave me, cause you know, you get caught up in this frenetic pace and you're just, it's like a white noise around you constantly. You're just go, go, go. And you're seeing your stuff in front of you. But like to go and watch the product again, like a fan, be like what makes me, resonate with a character what makes me feel you know emotion um and then being able to go back and then bring that it was nice to go back each time with and I can I can actually recall each injury like there was ankle injury with the Jeff Hardy you know there was the back injury with um Miss Ra taking me out you know um he broke my back um, <laughs> um <laughs> you know, uh to go back and uh with a fresh perspective and a new perspective and a new excitement really was helpful and it really it helped I think kind of like reignite my fire each time you just mentioned a couple of injuries. If I say to you, what was the worst bump you ever took in your career? Does one come to mind? Does one spring up to mind? Hmm. 
I mean, I was really lucky that I didn't, I didn't get injured. Um, mine was more like cumulative injury. It was like, you know, like a degenerative disc damage over time, what you're doing is going to, you know, impact you. And it did. Um, I mean, I had a the dislocated shoulder, um, but that was like a fluky thing. It wasn't like that bump did it. You know what I mean? I mean, going yeah. to the table, I don't know. I don't, one of the most exhilarating moments. It's such a weird thing to say when I went through the table, I was like, oh, that was so cool. <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> plan, right? So, um, yeah. So I don't know. I was, I, I loved all the bumps I took and I would do them all over again in a minute. I can't lose any more teeth though. I don't, there was a one I got thrown over the top. Once I got hit with a uh, steel chair and then one, I went over the top rope and I went, my tooth got knocked loose. So I don't want to lose any more teeth, but I would do every bump except for the tooth knocking bumps again. For me, you got choke slammed by Kane on Raw once, and that was pretty traumatizing for the young Trish Stratus fan in me. Was it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't like that. You know, it was that was nuts because the so he's what? How many feet is he? Seven feet? We say we say seven. Right? Yeah, almost. Yeah, ish, right? So then we add an arm. We're talking almost eight feet at this point. So as I'm taking, I'm like, where's the ring? When am I going to land this thing? Like it just felt like I was elevated for so long. I'm like still falling, still falling. Yeah. Um, that was a lot of fun, especially to do that. Like the fun thing for me was like Vince going, we're going to do this in Toronto. And I'm like, cool. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, so it was, it was great. Oh my God. I know. I said it was traumatizing for me. I can't imagine for all the Toronto fans in the crowd, like you're the hometown hero and Oh, yeah, that's tough. <laughs> Just a couple of weeks ago, you were out there for Lita and Becky winning the women's tag titles. And I tweeted after the moment that it was such a cool moment because it was probably so surreal for literally every single person involved in the segment. Was that true? Like, what was it like in Gorilla when you guys went right to the back after that? Oh, it was. I mean, and I think that moment um, now, like, it's, it's like the moment we had backstage, what it means is being is, is like interpreted in WrestleMania, like it, there's a multi-generational face-off, right? You have the past, present, and the future being represented. You have me and Lita as the past. You have Bailey and Becky as the present. And you have Io and Dakota as the as the future. Um, and so to see, I got goosebumps just now. I really actually did. Like, it's it's really, it's, it's so unique and it's such an interesting dynamic. So, you know, as a fan, because I'm a fan first, right? To see, uh, as a fan, to see that play out is going to be so cool. Um, and to, you know, to be in that moment when it happened and then for, you know, for, for lead out and say, Amy, you know, Amy, to see my friend, Amy, I'm going to say it, you know, capturing that title and seeing how good like her and Becky look together. I'm like, oh my God. Like, cause you know, when they faced off, that was like, this is so cool because they're kind of like, they represent the same sort of thing. Um, and so to see them having that moment um, and being a part of it myself as well was, it was, it was amazing, you know, and, you know, like I, to be, a, to be a part of that in that moment at this stage of our career, me and Amy are like, what, 23 years later, and we're in this moment. That's crazy. Are the women's tag titles something you guys would like talk about in the women's locker room back when you were wrestling full-time, or is that something that was so far away as a pipe dream that you guys never even thought of it. You nailed it. It was not even part of our vocabulary. Like it was, there's no way that would, why would they, they would never, right. We would never, we never thought we'd have even more one title to compete for. Right. We're just like, we have a title. There was a point we didn't have even a title. Right. Cause China had taken the that she was champion when she left the company. So there wasn't at some point there, at one point there was no, nothing to even fight for just nothing to fight for, <laughs> you know? So we were just thankful to have one title. Uh, no, never did we think there'd be tag titles. Never did we think there'd be multi-titles to 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 compete for. Um, so knowing that there is that now, knowing that's really what we were fighting for all along, not know, unknowingly, right, that we were fighting for these other things, just opportunity, the chance to be seen, the chance to be heard. Um, there was definitely a point in our career where we saw like, you know, uh, a rise in the female demographic. We saw 
the autograph signings filled with women and, and girls that were like, oh my God, I love what you do and you're inspiring. And you're like, oh, this is interesting. This is different than just you were caught in this bikini. Can you sign this, you know? Uh, and so it became about the bigger message um, about like, what are we doing? We're women making it in a male dominated world. I know for me personally, growing up, people say, did you know you wanted to be a wrestler when you grew up? Absolutely not. It's, it wasn't an option, right? There was nothing for me to see on my screen that I could say that I see myself in that, right? Like, I mean, of course there was Wendy Rector and there was moments of the wins for us in China, of course, but um, there wasn't enough of it for me to say like, that's a possible thing for me. Um, and so we realized we had to become the voice and, and we had to be the representation and we are suddenly female role models. And, and it was really important to be that. And so, you know, when we had that sort of that uh, conscious moment of like, there's a bigger picture to fight for out here. Um, and, you know, I think this for me and, and, and Lita wasn't about, um, you know, Rock and Austin. I don't know if they had the Trish and Lita bond, you know, that we have. They were just like, I want to be the bigger star. I want to be the bigger star. I think Lita and Trish was about, um, we can do this thing so that we as women have a place here. It wasn't about, I want to be the bigger star. She was, you know what I mean? We, we knew together. We had to do it together. And we knew that opportunity to do it together. And that's why that, you know, so, so I guess in a way, the rivalry we had is what made our bond so strong. Yeah, and I see you guys doing like Comic-Cons and signings a lot together now. Is that such a rewarding experience? Because I would imagine now at every single signing you do, you hear from at least one or two women that are saying, you inspired me and now I'm going to train and now I'm a wrestler. Even the modern roster, I feel like everyone on the women's roster is like, yeah, Lita and Trish inspired us. Yeah, at least one or two hundred, actually. No, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, no, they're, it, it's it's super cool and inspiring. And like, you know, we at one point decided to do that. Like we, uh, when, when Lita got inducted to the Hall of Fame, I was like, let's let's do this thing. Let's go on the road together. Cause my, my, my child was six months at the time and I was ready to like, okay, I'm going to get back into this now. Cause you know, I'd done the, the mom chapter and my kid was old enough for me to leave them. And you know, um, uh, we were like, okay, I'm like, let's do Team Bestie. We'll do this tour. And like for the opportunity for like Trish Stratus fans and Lita fans, you could finally come together because we are besties you know and then those neat stories that come out of it the, the the moments we get with fans sharing how what you know what we did how it influenced them and there's always the Trish and Lita because even if you were just a Trish fan it was Trish with Lita that maybe that's what that moment is the one that inspired you right so to have us together and then you know the opportunity for fans to take the pictures with us together and be together and chat with us together is super cool and we just love it and this in this point in our career in our lives um, to go back and still be doing this, um, you know, and, and, and getting these moments with not only the current landscape of women, but also the current fan base of women and men and everyone is, 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 uh, it's a blessing. It's really awesome. Now, speaking of moments in Gorilla, like going right back to the curtain or even right before you're about to go out before your entrance, do you have one that comes to mind as your favorite or most memorable? Oh gosh, that's interesting. Um, you know, a big moment for me was probably um, when I came back after the back injury. Um, it, it was it was like a surprise moment. I, I teamed up with Ashley and it was like a lot of women in the ring. So that was like a good sign of things to come that there was lots of women in the ring that could be physical, you know. Um, and it, and I, I just love the surprise of it all. I, I just, you know, there's nothing like that pop when they're not expecting it, you know. So that's always fun. And my Royal Rumble um, 2018, like, you know, my appearance in that, I think people were not expecting me. They were literally, literally expecting Rhonda. So <laughs> that was, you know. I was there um, for it. We were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were, right? You were like, oh, shit, yeah. just right. That's okay, you know. So uh, that was cool. Um, and that was, and, and that was, that was cool because that was the first t t taste I got of like, 
getting in the ring with this generation that we had influenced and, and, and had uh, an impact on. So that was really cool. And just to get that little taste and to now to have it continue to play out is, uh, oh man, it's great. Something I heard you say, I believe it was during the Tough Enough coaching days that has stuck with me and it has almost ruined matches for me because I can't unsee it now, is that one of your biggest pet peeves is people adjusting their gear during matches. You said, I cannot stand, you're in a fight. Why are you changing the yeah. way your clothes look, right? And now yeah. I can't unsee that. Whenever someone adjusts their gear, I'm like, oh, why are you adjusting the gear? Because uh, it does, it takes you out of the moment. I guess whenever it, started, it took me out of the moment too many times, and I'm like, it just proceeds, just proceed, just let's go, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, unless your boobs are falling out. Oh, well, yeah, mom. that's different. That's a wardrobe malfunction. Yeah, that's totally different. Yeah. But in terms of like just slight adjustments here and there, it almost yeah. looks like a nervous tick on some people. Uh, you know, it's like fixing your hair, like where you're like, throw a punch or something. It's, you're not doing that. You're not doing that in a real fight, right? I, I believe in preserving the integrity of fight, of the fight. You know what I mean? And I, I like that. And that's probably my upbringing from Fit Finley and from Regal and like being in my ear about the integrity of fighting and 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 what we do out there and, and, uh, and the stories that we're telling. Let's, you know, let's keep it real, you know? I did love you as a coach in those days too. I thought you were great with all of the, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, competitors on the reality show that with all the, you know, future wrestlers. Did yeah. coaching ever call to you after that? Did you ever think like, hey, I'd love to go coach the next generation or no? Not really. Um, no, I guess, I think when I left WB, I was, I was just like focused on next chapter things, right? That was more like an opportunity to do the show and be that part of that. And it was cool to me to like, I was like, oh, this is neat. I can give back what I've learned, right? But I never, and you know, I talked to like someone like a Matt Bloom who's down at the Performance Center, like, and Hunter, I talked to at many points, just like, you know, it'd be cool if you came down to the Performance Center or you came down, you know, there was always a chat to come down and, and do that, but not on a full-time basis. And like, you know, just, um, I just, I guess when I left the business, I had other things to do. I went back in the capacity of like a show really, but I did love that. Like, I love that I was able to give back what I had learned and what I had done in my, in my time there and then just, you know, pass it on. <laughs> Maddie is uh, telling a dog to sit. It's just pretend, so don't worry. But um, if you're wondering what happened, <laughs> that's Maddie. No, it's fine. <laughs> Listen, this is my mom's basement. Everyone's invited. The imaginary dogs, the real dogs, Maddie. Love get it. everyone in the basement. Love it. Um, and <laughs> speaking of like imparting your wisdom on other people, over the years, we've heard from so many wrestlers, male and female, that they hit you up for advice. What is like the best piece of advice that you were given in your career that maybe you could try to pass on to other wrestlers? Don't adjust your costume when you're performing. <laughs> no, <exactly. laughs> it's a good one. Um, yeah, it is, right? Um, I honestly I just um it was about just um being your authentic self. And that's something that, you know, and and we always you know it sounds cliche now because you know we always say we're amped up versions of ourselves out there, but I think those are the characters uh that the fans really because they detect that genuineness they they know when it's real and they and it's a little bit of you right you're giving a, a lot of you actually at that point but um and, and people that resonates with people right that hits and i think that's why those are the characters that stay and and you know become evergreen in our business um and so that's what i always try to say to people like character stuff of course but there's got to be a little element of authenticity what you do and who you are out there yeah and when people hit you up for advice do you feel like it's more about like how to navigate the business more about wrestling more about character work like when people reach out to Tristratus what do you get the most I get I get everything it depends who's reaching out right there's um I've had male and females reach out um like man because because they're like this is what's happening now like in your day how did you deal with this you know what I mean and and things certainly have changed um but they've also remained the same 
right? So um, yeah, I've, I've, I've given advice on all aspects, you know, as about what character, what moves to do and borrowing my moves or whatever. There's been so many, you know, cool calls that I've got or cool texts that have been like, okay, you know, uh, and much like, you know, uh, words of encouragement. Like I, I do, I like to reach out when I see something that's special or whatever. And I know it means a lot to like, for example, when Liv was having her main event match, like I just, it, it meant, it, it was important for me to reach out to her to, to know how important that moment was, right? And obviously she, um, she felt that importance as well. Like, well, you know, they meant a lot for her to hear from me, but um, knowing that like when I had my unforgiven match, my right retirement match, getting a text from Bret Hart, right. was like doing the sharpshooter in that match. It meant so much. And I did it as an homage to him. Right. So, and what he means to Canada and, and, and what he's contributed to the business. So getting that and getting almost like that seal of approval or that, like, you know, that nod from him, it meant so much to me. It'll always stick with me. So if I can do that and knowing that, you know, I perhaps have that same effect or I can, you know, influence someone in a certain way or encourage someone in a certain way. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I think it's important for sure as a senior talent. <laughs> I think it's so awesome that you do that. I interviewed Liv right before that main event, but it was after she had, you know, put it out that you texted her and everything. And she was so genuinely like fired up and happy about it. It was really cool to see. So it's awesome that you do that. Yeah. And then finally, what are your thoughts on Cardi B's tweets about you? Cardi B's had a couple over, over the years where she's like, I was a Trish Stratus girl growing up. I assume you've had to see them, right? Yeah, no, it's it's obviously because of our our, our derriere, you know, as our back end. I mean, we, we all have um, um, asses that have been talked about for, for, for decades now. Um, <laughs> uh, no, there's much more. I don't know. I think it's cool. Uh, you know, I think she's she was looking at like a strong female badass. That's what that's what yeah. Cardi B is, right? So like that's what you know. She grew up on that. It's you know, did I influence Cardi B? Maybe I don't know. Um, but yes. I think it's cool. I get it. Yes, yes, you you are confirming that. Um, you, you know to. to that you know the shout out and it's just it, it's it's to me it's just another a successful woman in another industry uplifting another woman and and, and giving that you know awareness uh, is what it is it's all about that right it's about supporting uplifting other women because that's what like stronger as, as a group like as of us all supporting each other uh and recognizing there's a space for everyone is super important and what really makes um makes us continue to grow yeah i, I see those tweets every now and then from her and she tweets about ray mysterio the undertaker eddie guerrero oh, all her favorites right yeah, it's and it's so like cool. we get too far into the forest to see the trees sometimes and we think wrestling's like our own little niche thing and then the biggest stars in the world remind you that everyone grew up with it yeah no that's the thing right it's nostalgic right it go and it's funny because i actually said that to a friend i'm like i was like oh my i, I mean did i fangirl about her tweet yes i did i thought that was cool yeah. you know and i showed a friend and she goes yeah of course remember what you re represent that's the nostalgic thing like she grew up watching what you did right like a woman making it in a male-dominated world and she did that too how cool right did you influence it i don't know but you know that's what she saw then she had that representation she had that visibility um so yeah it's it's really neat to be in that position and um do i fangirl yeah a little bit i do <laughs> you, you deserve it and anyone who wants to continue fangirling or fanboying can watch wwe rivals on sunday the trish versus lita episode on a and e i can't wait for it i'll be tuned in obviously freddie prince jr will be tuned in maybe a future movie in the works with him directing Obviously, Cardi B will be as well, right? Oh, of Obviously. course, yeah. Who's Trish, thank you That's so much. For... Yeah, I was going to say, do you have someone? Uh, I mean, I am you? available. I've done some. Yeah, I've you done could some play yourself. You could play yourself. That's fine. Uh, I don't know if Lita is available. Um, you know, maybe we, do we play ourselves? Or is that weird? Is it like? Yeah, she's done some acting. Some... I think she she she's had some acting aspirations. But you know, just to throw it out there, who would play Trish and Lita in the uh, made-for-TV special Trish and Lita? Who? 
tell us tell me yours tell me yeah, yours that's that's uh, you're putting me on the spot here trish this is really tough i'm gonna cast Respond to me at a late, um, okay right now i'm gonna, right now. I'm gonna cast less. margot robbie as trish okay i've said okay. that before too i like i'll mm -hmm. go margot robbie as trish and i'll go kind of like mm -hmm. an alternate girl like cara delavine as lita okay yeah i like is that, that is that maybe not looks wise the same like the, but the you get the aura the essence the personality yeah I'd, I'd, I'd buy a ticket to that movie um do you say like in the comments below or is that not how you say like let's yeah, yeah in the comments below Hello. Let us know who would play Trish Stratus and who would play Lita in the comments below. And uh, and and I hope you stratify me with your answer. Also, I'm going to delete it or heal delete it or whatever. <laughs> whatever. You're better at plugging this stuff than I am. I forgot about the comments. You got the people working. You're better you're at the content. Yeah, yeah, no, I got you. <laughs> thank you so much, Trish. I appreciate the time and just thank you for all the entertainment over the years. You're welcome. And then don't forget WrestleMania 20, 39. What are we on? 39 now? My God. 39. Um, you know, yeah, I'm going to be extremely stratified. You see what I did there? Nice. Ah, you're welcome. I loved it. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. All right. Shout out to Trish Stratus for joining. That was awesome. Really great interview. Now let me tell everyone about HelloFresh, and we'll get into our next interview right afterwards. Make mealtime easy with delicious recipes made with fresh, wholesome ingredients delivered right to your door. No lines, no hassle, just great-tasting meals you can whip up and enjoy in the comfort of your own home. With the cost of groceries going up and up, now is the perfect time to get started with HelloFresh. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout, which, if you live in a big city, Jersey City, New York, any city around the country, that could be an issue. Takeout is very expensive. You fall into the trap of going on these takeout apps, these delivery apps, and ordering night after night. HelloFresh, they have 40 weekly recipes to choose from, so you could be getting something different every week, getting something different every night for all meal occasions, lifestyles, and preferences. Take your pick of meals like soy-glazed salmon with rice and mushroom or mushroom and chive risotto. HelloFresh makes it easy to eat what you love. Customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides or even adding a protein to a veggie dish. And now you can even upgrade for organic chicken or organic ground beef on special meals, which just makes you feel healthier. You know, if you upgrade to organic, you're like, ah, I'm eating organic stuff. Even if you load it with salt and all that good stuff as well, you feel like you're eating healthy. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Fox60. F-O-X-6-0 and use code FOX60 to take 60% off plus free shipping. That is code FOX60. Again, F-O-X-6-0 at HelloFresh.com slash F-O-X-6-0 and you'll get 60% off plus free shipping on your first box from HelloFresh. It's America's number one meal kit for a reason. All right, welcome back to my mom's basement. It is Robbie Fox, and I am here with David Desmalchin, who I'm a huge fan of. Big get for the basement, basically. I'm excited to have you here. How are you? I'm fantastic. What a great introduction. Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could, it could have been better. I, I could have listed down all of the your whole resume, which is a lot. No, but that you think I'm a get. That's oh, a, you're that's a big a get. Great, that's a great compliment. For the basement? I want a t-shirt yeah. that says get. You're a I've get. been gotten... It's great to be here in the basement. Uh, you're in New hour. York for South by Southwest? Is no, that right? I was, I'm in New York for the premiere of The Boston Strangler. Okay. I just left South by Southwest in Austin, Texas for the premiere of a different film called Late Night with the Devil. And um, You just got the most stacked 2023 out there. It's just like I'm a, a little bit on – I have this mantra lately where I'm saying – 
not on a roller coaster. <laughs> I can take a step off whenever I need to. Uh, I can breathe as I need to because sometimes it does feel a little too chaotic. I'm also a dad of two kids who have all the needs that kids have. I've got a you know incredible wife, but I have to nurture and tend to that relationship. And then I've got a production company where I'm putting together right now two feature films, three publishing deals, and like a TV series. So then doing the wonderful tour of promoting projects that I have worked on and I love, like Boston Strangler or Late Night with the Devil, or we just wrapped up a bunch of work on Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania, getting ready for some more films. It can get a little uh, crazy, yeah. to say the least. And, and the great thing about the way that my life is worked out is that I do have this incredible life partner in crime, my wife Eve, and a really small, tight circle of friends and family around me. So at the end of the day, when you know you've been doing some crazy, chaotic shit, you can just go home and you know uh, sit on the couch and listen to your kids complain about you for being boring or whatever. It grounds you, right? It's Keeps very you grounding. It's great. It's great. Yeah. And your 2023, like I said, is so stacked with projects that are coming out. Are you like? acting in a bunch of stuff this year as well are you like being in stuff or is this a year where you're like i'm just promoting stuff and putting things out interesting question for 2023 i've definitely recultivated back towards my projects and my stories that i uh want to tell that come from me yeah um, i'm lucky that a lot of the jobs that i've gotten to be a part of where other people have brought me onto their projects are stories that i love telling and want to tell but Launching my company, Good Fiend Films, uh, which is a, a production company that you know specializes and focuses on wrestling with questions and big ideas that I care about through the lens of genre, so mostly science fiction, horror, superhero stories. Um, that's where I'm putting kind of all of my focused energy at the moment. Uh, that involves you know the the writing and creation and publication of one comic book that's currently in publication but then two more that are coming which i'll be announcing soon and then yeah i've got a tv show that i sold recently which i'm writing and developing and then oh congrats thank you two feature films so i'm putting a lot of that energy in there i will be acting in almost all of those projects but uh as far as other people's work like people who have been kind of coming to me recently with like would you like to do this would you like to do that um it hasn't been the right alignment yet i'm mm -hmm. open to it i know you know of course it'll be fantastic when the right thing presents itself but i'm i'd say energetically kind of focusing on uh creating my own projects right now was that always the end goal for you creating your own projects or did it come from being in the film industry and like falling in love with it i you know i don't think there's an it's not the end goal the end goal uh, for me is this this desire to tell stories that I would love to hear, but also tell the stories that I feel like I need to tell. And um, so ultimately, as I started my career, I was a Chicago theater actor. I started making a little bit of money doing television commercials. I got my first big break, was able to be a part of Chris Nolan's The Dark Knight, one of the greatest films ever made. I have it's this really favorite. cool, yeah. juicy little role that really propelled me, if not financially, at least it was a door opener. And I used that opportunity because my dream and my goal was ultimately to always work in film and television, but mostly in movies. I really was like, that was always a dream of mine. Um, came to New York in 2009 because I was doing commercials and I um, 
had been guided by some people I was working with at the time, agents that, that they thought this would be the right place for me to start. And although it didn't work out that way, because I couldn't even get an audition to save my life when I was in New York, I did meet the love of my life. I met Eve, uh, fell in love. And because I wasn't getting any auditions for anything, I was like, I was in a Chris Nolan movie. Like, come on, guys. Like, there should be something. I started to realize that for me, the journey was going to be creating opportunities by making my own shit. And I started writing and producing short films, um, web series, developing scripts for plays because I'm also, uh, you know, from the theater and I love theater. I was just writing, creating, trying to develop relationships with people who I felt could elevate my um, work as a storyteller and just spending as much time as I could making my own stuff. I just felt like that was the path and it was so rewarding for me and it felt so good and although I don't have the desire or the fire in my belly to direct I do have an aching desire and my heart to write and I love producing I love the magic of starting to sort out and understand the chemistry of a story and and and, and a project and what it could look and feel like and and putting together all the magic of like assembling a team around it so as the years progressed and I started to develop um my voice as a writer and I started to really figure out what it was that I wanted out of writing and storytelling and I I I had some some success small success but I had success and not a success in the financial sense of success but success in the sense of having a dream executing it and being very proud of what had been created I wrote and produced and acted in a film called Animals which mm-hmm. uh came out about 10 years ago now and then a Another film that followed that called All Creatures Here Below and since then have been just loving that part of my journey. And so starting Good Fiend Films um, was important to me because a lot of these seeds that I'd been planting and these these little trees, these little things that I'd been cultivating and ideas and stories, um, worlds that I wanted to build were starting to really take root and grow yeah. and I was um I've been really enlivened by that it's it's exciting and uh it's challenging it's scary it's hard because there's nobody paying me to do that stuff that's me making my own stuff and creating but I have again goes back I have this wonderful supportive loving support system around me I've been able to build such incredible relationships with people who are so much better at or know so much more than I do about this stuff and I learn from them. You know, I get to go spend six months on set with someone like James Gunn, who also yeah. happens to be a dear friend of mine. And I just, I watch and I take note and I learn and I observe and I know that I could be better and better and better at this stuff. So that's where we're at right now. And uh, I'm, I'm having a good time. That's really cool. Like the story of being able to find your own lane and make your own lane when there wasn't one for you is super inspiring. I hope people take that and realize how, you know, happy you are now and realize that that is a path that would be good for everyone, anyone to follow in any industry. It's important. No matter what, yeah, what, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're sitting there going, fuck, I can't get the break that I'm, I'm hoping for. I haven't gotten the uh, interview for the thing. I haven't gotten the chance to show my stuff the way that I want to show my stuff. Every day I was waking up, you know, I moved to Los Angeles in 2010. I had no agent. I had no manager. I had no representation. I met with really, looking back on it now, kind of like questionable 
you know, the one one manager I met with, she was renting space in like a storage unit, uh, <laughs> and she's standing at a table with her cigarettes. Like, they all passed on me, man. I'd been in the dark night. Like, I had had a cool role in a Christopher Nolan film. Nobody saw it when they met me. That's they crazy. were just like, eh, thanks. And like some smaller, like kind of, you know, agencies that you go like, I, you know, what? But I. I couldn't allow that to diminish what it was that I knew I needed to be doing. And and I hope if you're watching this and you're thinking and you're feeling that way about yourself right now when you're going, really? Like that job said no to me? That job said no to me? Thank your lucky stars that that job said no to you, that that opportunity said no to you. Because if you had taken it, God knows where that path would have gone. If I had gone with that woman who really was renting an office space in a in a in a storage unit and she had rolled no up her door for you she really did i'm not exaggerating <laughs> yeah. it was like that it was so bizarre and i was i was nervous mm-hmm. i was pitching myself like oh, can i please no no i would get up every morning i'd get my cup of coffee and i would go through all the breakdowns i would sign up for these services i was basically collecting unemployment and just scraping together whatever jobs i could in between um, and I was looking at and submitting myself for music videos, short films, student films, and I would spend hours and hours cross-referencing and doing all the detail work of, well, this person is the casting director for this USC short film project, and then I would Google that person. I go, oh, she actually has been an assistant at this office, so she actually probably knows people. This is a good opportunity for me to go in. And, and usually the compensation that you were being offered, if you booked these, by the way, which I rarely did, even yeah. those things, you know, people are like, oh, you're a successful actor. You work with all these great directors. You've done all this cool stuff. And I'm like, thank you. There was 4,000 crappy things that I auditioned for that, that said nah to me, you know, and I just kept being crazy enough to keep showing up. Um, yeah. Some of those relationships I built early on, submitting myself and pitching myself to these things, um, led to, I've got a great story I'll tell you later, but like led to that. So it's like, keep saying yes to yourself. Uh, keep being great, grateful and gracious with the nose that you get. Um, if you can't handle the nose, if it hurts your soul too much, if you're too broken by the rejection, then please do the work to try and understand what it is that you're seeking from this journey that you're on, whether it's as an architect or, you know, as a pediatrician or as a vet or as an actor, or as a musician or as a blogger, or as a whatever. Try and understand what it is, is what is it that, that crushes your soul so much in the in the rejection. It's very natural to have your feelings hurt and being told no. That's something I we all have to learn to live with. But if it's insurmountable, then maybe there's some questions you want to ask yourself and think about what it is. How much did I value? Other, how much value are you putting on other people's acceptance of you, other people's opinions of you? And can you find a place where your acceptance of how lovable you are as a person and how much value you have as a person really kind of supersedes that so that it doesn't break your soul to wake up the next morning having just been dumped by whatever yeah. the life circumstances and go, okay going back yeah i've heard kevin smith talk a lot about that actually like with a similar mindset and on a similar wavelength there and i know you've worked with him in the past have you ever spoken about that with him absolutely i was just sitting in kevin's uh, office at his house probably two weeks ago he's a dear friend of mine i love him we've talked a lot about that the journey the mental health journey of 
you know, being in this really, I mean, the, every every industry, every business has its share of, you know, what makes it hard. In ours, it's super tricky because you're constantly conflated with who you are as a person and who you are as an artist or whatever word you want to use, you know. And um, it can be quite easy to get caught up in believing or thinking that, you know, that 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 critique that critique that criticism of you as a person as a storyteller you know is is some kind of um you know evaluation of you as a human being and yeah kevin and i we talk about that a ton and how important it is to keep surrounding yourself with the people who truly love you just for who you are that you're not a human doing you're a human being yeah and if you don't hear that listen again you are a human being you are not a human doing what you do is important of course what we do with our lives our work it is a way that we navigate this human experience and it helps us come up with answers and figure out you know you know the answers to questions we're trying to wrestle with and figure out what we're doing with this life but it is not your value as a person just being me doing absolutely nothing bringing nothing to the table other than just myself is uh is enough and yeah. kevin and i we've talked about that a lot because god knows we've been you know told that's a piece of crap that you just made or you're a part of this thing that's terrible or people are like and you gotta go okay all right man yeah moving on put your head down keep moving that's right keep making keep creating yeah you know? yeah now, I know The Dark Knight was your big breakout role where a lot of people first saw you, but did you know that it's actually not the first credit you have on IMDb? I bet the first credit I have on IMDb is called Everybody's at Rick's, an episode of the TV show called, hold on, don't tell me, Early Edition. You're is correct. that right? You're correct about that. So Early Edition was a TV series that was filming in Chicago. Um, it starred... The very talented Kyle Chandler. Okay. Amazing actor um, who's gone on to have an incredible career, right? Yes. Uh, that guy's amazing. So it was about a guy who would get the newspaper the day before, uh, the, a day early. It was kind of like a time travel you know, sci-fi conceit. And he would get the newspaper the day before and then try and help, you know, prevent whatever tragedy was in Actually, the Actually, uh, not, not a bad concept. A cool idea. Yeah. Cool idea. So I was in theater school in Chicago. We were not supposed to audition for anything professionally outside of school, but I did it anyway. Um, and I got like a one-line role where I, I think I carried a, 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 a cocktail across a bar. And, and you don't even see me on camera. Oh, really? But I was like, you know, but I, that was my first time ever. Like, and, and it was so quick and it was such a... It did say on IMDb, uncredited. Uncredited. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I was surprised it was even on there if it was uncredited. I guess you must have told the story in an interview before. Someone I, probably like went and updated it for you. Maybe, maybe. Or maybe the person who made it is just trying to be like, we had him first. Maybe. Taking some pride in yeah, you Yeah, sure. Grateful for them hiring me. I think, you know, you made like 600 bucks or something and got to be on an episode of a TV show. That was sadly... At a very dark time in my life as well. You know, I was at that point so deep in the throes of my addiction. I was a heroin addict and I was coming out of a really successful journey through theater training in Chicago. And one of the hardest 
most intensive acting kind of, um, you know, training grounds you can imagine. And I was doing well, like people were like really responding to my work. And I was definitely like on a path of probably going to do some interesting work as an actor. But my addiction was so crippling and it was so, uh, it was so, it was so hard soon after that, that episode, um, was kind of when I walked away from everything. I I left acting for about five years. The first, oh God, maybe longer than that. I was going to say, this was 2000, it said on your IMDb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Dark Knights, not until 2008. 2008. So I was homeless for the most part from 2000, late 2000 through 2002. Wow. Um, You know, you burn the candle at both ends. Addiction, a lot of people who've suffered with addiction understand this. Everything feels manageable. Everything feels like it's possible. You're going to live the rest of your life figuring out how you can drink all day or shoot up all day or smoke all day or do whatever it is that you have to do to get through because you're an addict. Um, And the bottom just dropped out one day and all of a sudden there was no rent there was no nothing there was nothing except for getting my next fix and then I yeah lived in a car and it was pretty dark times uh for quite a while when I finally did get into recovery and started to you know make the journey of wellness and you know learning how to live my life without drugs and alcohol but also learning how to start the process of you know finding some mental wellness which was the other big part of it it wasn't just getting clean and sober for me it was also like okay we got to deal with this fucking depression we've got to deal with this anxiety we've got to deal with you know trauma blah 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 it took a long time yeah and i didn't know if i'd ever act again i was a telemarketer i was working in a movie theater i was grateful because i was able to you know wake up every day without needing a hit i was um just living life in uptown in chicago and getting a totino's pizza at night and uh watching renting movies from my blockbuster and living and and grateful and then all of a sudden one day a friend of mine was like i'm 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 directing a play you should be in it i said i don't think that's a good idea and she encouraged me to another friend of mine he was making a play and he said you know i think this is a you really should do this and i thought i don't know if this is a good idea and he was like don't worry if it doesn't go well there's no stress no foul and it ended up being the best experience i found out that not only did i not need drugs to be the actor that i thought you know i needed them for before i was much better and um and i had a lot of stories left to tell so then yeah there's a big chunk of my life that i missed acting but i'm grateful for that chunk yeah because a, I learned how to live without, you know, drugs and alcohol. B, I learned a lot about myself, which informs the work as an actor. Um, and C, interesting, anyone out there who feels like they're behind the eight ball, I was getting back into acting professionally. And and then when I decided, oh, shit, this is it. Like, I'm really doing this now. Hell or high water. I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to work in movies. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to write. I'm going to make stories. I'm going to make this shit happen. Whether all I ever do is shoot short films on my cell phone, I am going to make stuff and tell stories. This is what I'm going to do. I had lost these years and it lit this crazy fire under my ass that was just like, it was a good thing. Because yeah. I every day would wake up and be like, I lost years, man. I got to be 
you know, I gotta be, I gotta be doing my thing. I gotta be, I gotta be figuring out how to make this happen because I'm so behind everybody else. And I've never, it's funny. I've never stopped feeling that way. Even to this day, I'm always like, I'm behind everybody else. So it's, it gave me this really good competitive edge. I feel like yeah. where I, I would always do that extra hour of work or wake up that extra hour earlier to like make sure I was out there trying to get, get, get ahead of the pack. Yeah, I'm grateful for those years as well because you've made a lot of entertaining stuff for all of us since. Thanks, man. Thank you. Um, the Dark Knight is my favorite movie of all time. It's it has so been good. since it's the so day good. I saw it, July 18th, 2008. Still have my ticket stub somewhere in my house for The Dark Knight. That being your first major role like that, dealing with depression, anxiety, all of that, were you on set feeling crazy anxiety or was that a, a good experience for you? I was. I was um, just... At that point, I was like five years into being clean, but I was just scratching the surface of the work that I was doing with the therapist and psychiatrist to start really treating and working with the anxiety and depression that I was struggling with. And I had, it was a first time being on a real film set. So coming to work the first time, not knowing what I was doing because they were so secretive, they really hadn't told me exactly what the character was or what I was going to be doing. I just had created this character based on knowing that I was going to be working for the Joker, thinking about all my lifetime. By the way, I've been collecting comics since I was in third grade, so I'm a deep appreciation of the mythology of the Joker, and I feel like I have a, a lot of opinions about what that looks and feels like. So I came in as prepared as I could possibly be, not knowing what I was actually doing. And I'm this, you know, theater actor from Chicago who's mostly performed in front of 25 to 100 people in folding chairs and storefront theaters. And I'm in hair and makeup trailer sitting next to Gary Oldman and Heath Ledger and Christian Bale and all these actors that I'm like, holy shit, what am I doing here? I don't yeah. belong. And I started to shake uncontrollably I was feeling so so much anxiety that my body was genuinely like um losing control of itself a bit and I was sweating and I was shaking and I um I'll always be so grateful for the director because he seemed to recognize that I was struggling and he was very kind to me, and he uh, is a very serious, focused, incredibly confident visionary who can orchestrate and lead a massive armada, which is what he was doing. I was watching this legendary director standing in the middle of LaSalle Avenue in Chicago, surrounded by a crew of hundreds with thousands of extras and cameras everywhere, and he just was so focused and serious and confident and knew what he needed. And it was very intimidating for me because um, I didn't want to disappoint him. And I felt like I didn't even know if I'd be able to perform. And in spite of how serious he is and how focused he is and how acutely aware he is of everything that's happening around him, he seemed to kind of hone in, I think, on the fact that I was struggling. And I, uh, and I felt like he... He just kind of, you know, set me at ease. He gave yeah. me a, a kind of assurance. I don't know how to describe it. It's that gift that a great director has that they know how to communicate with actors. And he maybe was, you know, he made like some little jokes to me, made me set, set me at ease. And he was just so, it was disarming. It was really yeah. lovely. And, it, and, he, and, he, and he was 
kind of side coaching me as I was performing. The first scene we shot was me in the back of the ambulance where uh, Harvey Dent comes in and wants me to tell him what I know. And I, um, like I said, I'd made this choice about this character. And when I finally saw what the scene was, I thought, oh, that's a good choice because I'm not tough or intimidating and I'm not physically intimidating. And Aaron Eckhart can be pretty physically intimidating. So the thought of how am I going to intimidate him back when he's asking me questions is going to be tricky. And I thought, well, there's nothing... I think more intimidating than if someone threatens you and you just smile at them. So I went with that, with this choice that even though I'm smiling or maybe giggling, there's something misfiring in my brain and I'm actually trying to maybe tell him what's really going on. Yeah. Like maybe what I really am trying to communicate is like, this guy's about to kill a bunch of people. He's, you know, he made me do this thing, but how terrifying if I can't do anything but smile and giggle. I started thinking about the gas and I was thinking about the clown prince and thinking about the history of that and how he could manipulate people and um, and it was it was great. And then, and at that time I was going through a really terrible breakup. Um, my, I was with someone who had gone back into using and so you add that to the stress of, now I'm going to go we went to London to shoot the sequence uh, where Harvey Dent kidnaps me and he's flipping the in coin the alleyway. in the alleyway. That we shot in the Battersea Power Station. Um, and I was in London for almost a month, like three weeks, because I was on weather cover. So that meant if it started raining, they were going to shoot my scene and it didn't rain. So I just got to keep hanging out in London and waiting to work. Oh, just waiting for just it to waiting rain? waiting to work, yeah. Wow. And then it finally, they shot my scene towards the end of their time in London. Um, but the anxiety was building and the tension was building. And then we shot that scene. And again, I just didn't know. I was like, am I terrible? Am I any good? What's happening? The anxiety was getting so bad. Anybody who has wrestled with or struggled with anxiety can relate to this. On the flight back from the UK to the US, I was living in Chicago at the time. I became unquestionably convinced that I was having a cardiac uh, situation. Oh yeah, I've been there. Yeah, so I went to um, the ER as soon as I got off the plane, and they ran a bunch of tests. And they, you know, you say things like, "Oh, I have a history with shooting up," or "I have a history with you know, I've smoked." I used to smoke cigarettes like crazy, and so they're not like it's not unquestionably yeah. it's possible. And anybody who says I'm, I think I'm having a heart attack, they're going to listen, you know, and they're going to run all the tests and they're going to do all the stuff. And they came back and they said, you're fine, man. You're okay. Go see your general, you know, practitioner, see what's going on. But as far as we can tell, everything looks good. It's okay. Probably two weeks later, I'm back in the ER, you know. No, this is no bullshit. I am dying. I am dying. I am dying. I will be dead tonight if you don't do whatever you got to do. Do I need a stint? I don't know. Is this open heart surgery time? I don't know. I don't want to tell your job, doc, but you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'm dying. (laughs) And this wonderful doctor, I'll never forget, you know, they run all the tests. And he's like, I see you've been in here before. This is the third. I actually went in three times to the ER. And he goes, I see you've been in here before. And he goes, what do you know about, like, general anxiety disorder? What do you know about that? And I was so offended. Really? Yeah. I was like, like. I'm not one of those anxiety people. This is real. This isn't psychosomatic. I'm not crazy. Huh? Am I? And and he's like, what are you talking about? You got to get over that bullshit. That has nothing to do with being crazy or it's not, it's not psychosomatic. Is not a 
it's not a pejorative. We've come to you know think of the term psychosomatic as some kind of insult, like you're making shit up. Your body and your brain are so in intricately linked together that when you're experiencing stress, strain, trauma, you know, incredible fatigue, your brain, it it is so obviously it's operating the ship. Parts of your body will start to falter. Yeah, it's just a fact. So. Thus began the journey of therapy, psychiatry, working with professionals, and um, so grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. put you yeah. on a, a great journey ahead. Great journey. A lot of superhero stuff to follow. As a comic book fan, like you have lived an amazing life in terms of, oh my God, The Flash, Gotham. You've been in Ant-Man movies as multiple roles. One of the only people with multiple roles in the MCU. It's obviously, crazy. And then Polka Dot Man, possibly my favorite in The Suicide oh, yeah. Squad. <sighs> Just a tremendous role. I loved also seeing how many pieces of fan art you reposted after that movie came out. Why would – I mean it was – I had to. Every single great. time so I cool. was getting – I'm like, this person deserves to have their work seen. They're so talented. I can't believe people spend so much time. But I do believe it. You know why? Because I'm a fan. Yeah. I'm a geek. I grew up – you know, like I said, reading yeah. comics and I would do my own fan art. And I'm a terrible drawer. Yeah, <laughs> and <me> I, too. <laughs> I used to take um, – I've always believed that DC had the best villains and Marvel had the best superheroes. So I used to like do tracing paper and I would try and create battles between, yeah. you know, you name it, like Solomon Grundy versus Moon Knight. Or oh, who wins? Yeah. Uh, well, Moon, Moon Knight would Moon Knight probably would, would triumph but never wins because there's always like yeah. some thing that, you know, takes 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 place. But I, I loved that or, you know you know, Morbius versus the Scarecrow. Um, That's a good one. Yeah, I, I used to love doing this that is, shit. Someone fund a Dave just fantasy matchup show. I want to see this let's TV do, series Let's now. do it. All right. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, and, and, I, and I love the idea of the DC Marvel crossover stuff because they've done it before. Anybody yeah. who's, you know, collected comics for a long time knows there's been time like the jla avengers crossover uh, 10 12 years ago is pretty cool i was gonna say like not too long ago like fairly recently in the yeah. 2000s it happened right yeah, yeah yeah it was rad yeah it looked really cool and um I mean, who knows? In the future, I always say, in 20, 30 years, who knows what the movie landscape looks like. James Gunn is now running DC, and he's like, let's do it. He's like, I want to mash everything up. Can you imagine how crazy. fucking cool it would be to see James Gunn get to take DC, Marvel, and have that, like, you know, Secret Wars meets, you know, Crisis, like, yeah. kind oh of God. event. Like, that would be... <sighs> nerds all over the country just had nerd gas. Yeah, as you said. I just got chills. That's yeah. <laughs> that's when we all uh, transcend to Nerdvana. When James does that, like uh, I could see it. I could totally see it. How lucky are we that he's about to unleash a whole new chapter of DC? I know on all of our I mean, minds. What he's already announced. I'm like, oh, are yeah. you kidding me? We're and doing what he's Batman and Robin. I love that his like entree into DC was a movie as you know, uh, bonkers and, and rad risky. and funny and risky as the Suicide Squad. Yeah. It was just like, it's what the shit needs. You've yeah. got to inject it with that. Um, and he knows exactly what he's doing. It's so cool. Was that Suicide Squad set as fun as it looked from the yes. outside? Yes, and more so, more fun. Uh, we had such a killer time. Margot is a hero to me. Like, she is such a great leader on set in the sense that, like, she just works so hard, but she's so funny. Idris is 
fucking hilarious. I never realized what a great sense of humor he has because I always have admired him in, uh, so much as like a, a, a serious actor. But then I was like, he was fucking great on The Office. And he's done yeah. some funny shit before. Such a cool down-to-earth guy. Joel, I've always thought like, oh, that guy's cool, badass. He's probably like maybe too cool, you know, or something. Nope. Sweet as hell. Played with my kids. Was a blast. Steve Agee is one of my best friends in the world. He was the you know the the onset king shark mm -hmm. so he was there improvising and creating and being this character um as well as economos although i didn't have any scenes with economos um daniela's become a lifelong friend of mine her rat catcher too is perfect she yeah. is a she's a becoming a big movie star right now she's in the new fast and furious and she's in tons of new stuff but like we would laugh so hard we would cry sometimes. I mean, Peter as thinker, Peter, I've been a fan for a long time, a Doctor Who fan. You know, I just was like, we would just sit and talk about Hammer Horror and monster movies and all this stuff together. Um, John Cena running around in his tidy whities That guy is so funny and he's so, he's such an odd ball he fit perfectly with all the weirdos and i thought again he was another guy i kind of thought oh is he gonna be is he this like is he too cool i don't know i just didn't, didn't have a know, sense yeah. of what he was gonna be like and then we're there and he's ridiculous he's yeah. so funny he's so fun to be around so positive such a just a good guy you know um yeah, that was a really special time. I'll never forget that. The family, James's family to me, you know, he's like a brother to me. And um and 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 I was there, the kids were running around set, you know, I had I found my cat who's a part of my family now while oh, we were nice. making that movie. Yeah, we were in we were in Panama, Cologne, Panama, shooting the big battle against uh Starro sequence and uh and and it was so crazy. This beautiful cat kept coming up to set and wanting love, and she was hungry and tiny and scared. And um, and I fell in love with her. And I yeah, I I got her home. She That's lives at awesome. my house name? now. Bubblegum. Oh, nice cat. I man. wanted to call her Abner Bubblegum Polka Dot Cat. So that's her full name. That's her birth certificate name, Abner Bubblegum Polka Dot Cat. But she became a bit of an internet celebrity. If you Google it, it was crazy because Juliana. Our costume designer um, is a big pet lover, and they were really helping rescue a lot of the animals down there, as was James. James is a huge animal I lover, and he guy, was yeah. big into rescuing critters while we were um, while we were on location. And um, and the costume team um, had made this polka dot man costume uh, that fit bubblegum perfectly. <laughs> and so I took some pictures of her and. Uh, and it went viral. It went crazy. And all of a sudden, my cat became like a, uh internet celebrity. It was pretty A rad. Nepo cat? Yeah. Yeah, Nepo <laughs> cat all the way. She's such a Nepo baby. Um, Man, that was a good experience. I love that movie so much. That's awesome. I just got one more question for you because I know we're going long. I feel bad. I could get to all of your movies. But Prisoners is another one that I absolutely adore. Yeah. And I just actually – I was late on Prisoners. I just watched it for the first time over the last year. Yeah, they just put it on Netflix around the holidays, and all these people were coming out of the woodwork being like, oh, my God, dude, Prisoners. And so, I was like, you slept on that I, shit. That I, was 2013, I know. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm one of those people, and I was blown away by it. When you're playing a sick fuck like the person you're playing in that movie and the director yells cut, 
are you trying to stay in like kind of a sick fuck mindset for the next take no. or are you going right to like let me think about spongebob so i could get that out of my brain well, I think about SpongeBob all the time, no matter what. But <laughs> I love, who doesn't love SpongeBob? Can we go? Let's do. We'll have a show about SpongeBob a, at some point. SpongeBob, SpongeBob is very important. Yeah. But um, no, I will disagree with you on a certain point. Okay. I don't believe Bob Taylor was a sick fuck. I believe Bob Taylor was a victim, damaged, uh, damaged. He had been abducted as a child by those people. Yeah. He had been tortured as a child by those people. He'd never been given the resources or the support that he needed as a grown-up processing that trauma. So what Bob Taylor was doing, he had no interest in harming anybody. He was trying to help. He was trying in his own weird, fucked-up way to solve the mystery of the maze so that he could ultimately help rescue these kids who've been kidnapped. So for me... Playing that intention just meant being so scared. But he was so scared that at any second um, somebody was going to grab him again. Yeah. So I – and when, when I was helping to create the character and thinking about what he looked and moved and you know operated like, I decided as opposed to the, – the screenplay described him as a very bushy, big, kind of reclusive, um, hermetical guy. And I thought, no, because he's got to pay bills. He's got to live a life. He, has to, he must have to go to work. And I think he tries his best to just blend in like wallpaper. He kind of wants to just be like beige wallpaper that kind of moves around and you'd never notice him anywhere because he's so afraid of if he has noticed being caught or captured while he's still trying to work through the clues that live in his subconscious and trying to understand the snakes and the the, the horror oh, and the, the mazes and me, all yeah. of this like – so to be quite honest, in between takes, to me, it's really important to reset, to think about um, what do I need to do to make sure blocking-wise I'm getting the director what he needs. Am I doing you know, what I need to do to help my scene partner? Am I you know, performing in a way that's beneficial to helping the camera team get there? I'm a very technical actor. I'm yeah. not like a method actor, uh, but it doesn't mean that sometimes your body doesn't get tricked into believing the circumstances are real so most of the time i try to pride myself on being able to do something that's demanding you know emotionally psychologically and then when they yell cut and i've observed this in heroes of mine like heath ledger like on the dark knight they yell cut you back to your your first mark you shake it off you're ready to reset you got to get to seven this time. You're going to go to a six. You're going to, you're a computer in a way. You're kind of like, okay, what do I got to do to make this work so that that sees what it needs to see? How do I manufacture all of this stuff to give that what the director is going to need it to, to, to do? There was one moment in Prisoners, though, when we were shooting the sequence where I take the gun from the cop and I blow my brains out, where I do feel like I kind of came untethered for just a second. It's happened to me a couple of times as an actor where. My body gets so caught up in the circumstances of what's happening that my brain starts to really believe it in a way that's probably not healthy. And I kind of came apart for a minute. And then when I came back to reality, it was it was lovely because, you know, Gyllenhaal was there. He's kind of had his hand on my chest, which is helping me get my breath. And director Denis, who's a dear friend of mine, was right there to say, are you OK? What do you need? Just give me a few seconds. Let me do some breathing, some mindfulness and then we can get back into it Hit but yeah reset. i really think that's important for actors to be able to do because sometimes you have to do something 47 times or 147 oh times yeah. and it's 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 counterintuitive to the process of filmmaking to go 
I'm 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 crazy. I can't <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't do it. I gotta go. <laughs> I'm playing. You know I'm 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 the living vampire now. I'm gonna climb the wall because I'm in character. No fucker, you need to get back to your mark so we can make sure you're lit right. Is the makeup need to be fixed? You know, is your yeah. costume okay? Yeah, this is it's a job. It is still a job, and I'm there to service someone else's vision. I'm an actor, not a director. Yeah. It's not my job to make everything operate around me. You'd be surprised. Some people seem to have a different opinion. Oh, no. We see it sometimes. You see stories trickle out sometimes with someone on set, and you're like, oh, maybe they're going a little crazy with the method. And sometimes you're like, is there, is, is the, how, how much better could the performance have been if they were able to take their ego out of the way and go, what do you need? You're running this show. What do you need? This is your show. What is it that I can help? What, how can I help bring your vision to life as opposed to how can I make you do what I want to do? Yeah. It takes a lot of vulnerability. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And trust. And yeah. I'm so lucky. I've, I've worked with so many directors who I can trust implicitly. So if they say, jump on one leg and bark like a dog, I'm going to do it because I know trust the them. the end product will come out the way that they envisioned it. Damn right. Yeah. All right. Well, that was very fascinating hearing you break down that whole process, even just the process of what your characters were thinking in those movies that I love so much. So Thanks, I really man. appreciate you coming in and doing this. This, this is cool awesome. Yeah. This is awesome. Thanks, everybody. And uh, yeah, make sure and... Um, Go check out my comic book, Count Crowley, yep. Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter. The new volume's in stores now. If you guys like uh, comics and monsters, check that out. And Go uh, to your local comic book store. Pick it up. Yes. If you are struggling today and you feel alone in the world and you feel like there's nobody that understands you and you just feel like giving up, I promise you there are people who can listen. There's people that want to help if you're struggling with any feelings of self-harm i want you to google samsa s-a-m-h-s-a-a there's a wonderful free resource for lots of opportunities for you to find ways even if you don't have a penny to your name to get the help that you need uh but you are lovable and you deserve to be here and uh and 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 i hope you can take that to heart beautiful message go get the help you deserve you deserve that help All right, awesome chat with David Dasmalchin. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Now let's get into our final interview of the night with Gavin Rossdale, lead singer of Bush. Welcome back to my mom's basement, ladies and gentlemen. It is Robbie Fox, and I am here with Gavin Rossdale, lead singer of Bush. We're here to talk about the new album, The Art of Survival. It's not the newest. It's the latest album from Bush, but it came out in October. So you've gotten some time to actually play these songs on tour and everything. How has that been? Uh, phenomenal. I don't know what's happening. And it's like in my true traditional sense of doing everything the wrong way around. We're better than ever and having a great time and people that want to see us want new songs as much as the old songs. There's a really great kind of tension in the set between the older songs and new things and just trying to like, just be great at every point. What's the timeline for this album like from the beginning of writing to the release? Eight months, nine, 10 months, some of that, you know, the beginning of the year and then that came out pretty fast. And then we've done some, another song that's coming out on the 20 something of April, I think another song, they're going to, to re-release the record like make it deluxe um we've got a we did a recording with amy from evanescence of a song called a thousand years which we have she came and sang with me at the Ryman, and so i think we're going to release that it was too damn good she's so great yeah she is she's an amazing she really, vocalist like, she um basically took the band uptown you know what i mean like we we're like a low rent band and she sings on it we've I've, 
feel like we're like right on the neck and neck, like right there with Celine Dion, who's an amazing vocalist as good as Celine Dion. Well, I can't wait to hear that. That sounds amazing. And I think this new album is so cool sonically. Like it it just sounds great. What were the sonic influences for it, whether it comes to guitar, bass, drums, like the sound you were trying to emulate? I just sat in my studio just trying to do really syrupy, wide, um, oceanic kind of music. So sort of detuned and then, you know, all those kind of trippy keyboards and atmospheres and sort of wannabe Brian Eno plugins that I have <laughs> and then and just sort of create atmosphere and I, I I like I like the music when it's really cinematic you know and really suggestive and wide and, and it's so heavy but yet I don't sing in a traditional heavy screamo kind of way so I think that's already a uh, our own juxtaposition, I think, was was cool. Me trying to desperately find melodies on these massive riffs, you know. I'm going to find that melody. And then when you do, it's like, you just, it's like, it's very, um, they're evasive, those melodies. You know, the magic melodies are sort of in there, in your DNA, but you've got to like, you've got to charm them out. So it's fun. Heavy as the Ocean, the first track on the album. Was that written to be the first track? Because it has that cinematic, almost intro sound. I'm a bass player myself, so I love that bass intro and the way the album kicks off and everything. Did you have that written with it being the opener in mind? It's so weird because generally things happen by chance. and You end up, if you get it right, you look smart retrospectively. Um, And things aren't normally like that. But in this instance, as soon as that, when I was writing, it was weird because I'd been writing and working on music and I hadn't really begun to dive into the record, you know. And when I found that song and found that riff, I was like, I'd never had it before and probably wouldn't have it since, is I was like, this has to dictate the aesthetic of the record. This is what shows me, it's my own weather vane. I, gotta, I can't stray from that track because that track is really good. I didn't, you know, I figured out apparently it's like harmonic minor. So suddenly I got really obsessed about the harmonic minor scale. It's like, I can't do anything else like harmonic minor because that's really quite heavy. And uh, so, and then, you know, then after that I had like, um, May Your Love Be Pure. And those tracks kind of went together and it just, yeah, informed the record. And it's weird because I, you make all these plans that inevitably, as you get through the process, it, it would change. You know, what I mean, plans are just like placeholders, words that don't mean anything anymore. Um, but I stuck to it, and it, it does. It opens the record and uh, really sets people on their way. And I never, for instance, I called the record "The Art of Survival" because I figured that everyone had been through so much shit, um, and everyone had this story, and it wasn't like oh, this is all about me and my trials and tribulations. It's just like, man, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we went through it, did we not? You know what I mean? It was really like this sort of open open question suggested, you know? And then, like you're saying, when I figured out to put um, the uh, Heavy as the Ocean as the opening track, that's where I look smart, where I'm not that smart. It just looked smart because it was like, the other survival, here's the first song. That, uh, so that was a happenstance, but because I didn't know what the album title would be. So, uh, but that, so yeah, I just worked out like that. When it comes to your songwriting process at this point, has it changed a lot in your writing career? Like, do you write songs differently than you wrote them on the first album or is it the well, same kind of stuff? Hell of different. Like, because 
now we're all we're all wannabe producers, right? So we all got like little rigs, little setups. We'll be like, hey, I had this idea, and then like out comes this like crazy uh, band of Gavins, you know, and um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I just I get blown away with I'm I'm, I'm sort of really a basic person, so. I find it staggering when I sit there and uh, get the sounds up. I'm a very basic engineer. I can work Pro Tools. I do everything but record my voice. I don't record my voice. I record my voice into the, uh, you know, voice recorder when I've got a riff going on. You know? Because I don't want to be that guy in the studio just doing that. I just, uh, there's just something about it. I don't. So I like, I, have, I basically get some tracks together. But when I turn on, you know, I've got a beautiful... Uh, you know, P bass, beautiful ESP bass, uh, jazz bass. And I, I use my Parallax plugin. I don't know if you've used that Neural. Have you used that? No. Have you used it? You've got to try it out if you're a bass player. Yeah. Neural. Yeah, the Parallax. It's fucking, it was like, oh my God. So you're just like a king. Just when you play a note, you're like, fuck. And then if you've got detuned and the riff is working, you put that bass with it, or you just have a drum beat up. I, I like to find drum beats and then mess with them a bit, you know, change them around and just make them my own. But I like those ones where you get the feel of a real drummer. When I program on start on my own, I'm always like somehow chasing my tail. When I start with a drummer from programming, then I just, you know, move his bass drum around a bit here and there. It feels... Somehow they get that whole energy, they get that, you know, they feel right. So I just, so the way that I write tracks is um, get drums first. And then at every step, I have to be sort of satisfied or turned on or inspired or whatever you say. So sometimes it would be with the bass uh, and sometimes it would be with the guitar and just sit there and wait till something comes and then just keep building it. You know, really basic. I mean, caveman, Neanderthal, really. There's nothing. There's, it's just the way to do it. I keep doing it until I like it, and then when I like it, I do the next bit. And then, and then when I when a guy comes in to record me, it always sounds completely different than what I expected. Just you know, I'm like in the care, it's like oh, none of that work, you know. So then I just go through that process with him, and I've worked with him forever. So this is 2005. So there was no. It's really easy. Um, not the job. But the process in terms of okay just stay here until i get something good you know the poor fucker used to be in there when i just would start with a riff you know hours and hours of playing stuff i'd be like i feel bad for me if you just sat there and like looking online and stuff like that and i'd be like trying to find inspiration um and now i do all that dirty work when no one's around and i love it i just sort of you know play the music in my studio which is just a bedroom in my house and like but it's tricked out, so it looks like a studio, but it's a bedroom. And it's got an Apollo with two outputs, because I, I don't play with anyone, so therefore it's one person at a time, it's all I need. And laptop, but I have it on this um, Stephen um, Slate uh, Apollo interface. Like, it looks like these two big screens and a desk. It's like fucking like the TARDIS. And it's not. <laughs> it's just two screens. That's <laughs> two screens. But it feels really good, and I've got like, panels on the ceiling that I painted red, you know, sound things. So it looks tricked out. It looks like Lenny Kravitz. It looks like a Lenny Kravitz offshoot. And um, it's a vibe. Got a little balcony and I, so I'm in there. So I used to sit with a cassette recorder, drum machine and do things, then go into rehearsal and be like, okay, you play this, just keep playing this, blah, blah, blah. then I'll sing this bit, you know, like even more Neanderthal. Neanderthal man without a shade. 
and uh, and that was wild. And then um, now I just do it like that, and and everyone else has a studio, so I can send ideas along. Um, to we have a producer, uh, and then I take my session to him, and then we'll, then he likes to do pre-production on that, and then everyone comes and plays on it, and we're done. That's it. And sometimes they. You know, I might write on someone else's riff. You know, they might send me a riff. They might send me music. I like doing that. And I'll sing on that. I can do top lines. When I just do top lines, it's like a dog, like I shave three days off the process, you know? Okay, yeah. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, good. And then I have to put it in and I cut it around how I want, you know, sections to be to suit the vocal top lines. And uh, that's it. So it's changed a lot, you know? But at the end of the day, it's still trying to find a common emotion um, and expressed in a singular way so that people can identify with it. That's, that's it. And I think that in the first one, you know, if you, if you, like when I first began, I saw no horizon. You know, I just thought, oh, I'm in a band. Now I've got a bit of success. I'm in a band forever. I'm never going to die. I'm always going to be on stage. I'm always going to be number one. And then um, you realize that uh, you're wrong. Like, that's not the case. And uh, everything's fleeting. <laughs> and you're fucked. Um, so, <laughs> well, you might as well really um, not waste any time or any recordings. And there's times in my life creatively where I think I've let things slide because I felt I was better than I was. <laughs> and... I didn't confront myself about certain things creatively, finish that section, make it better. Is that lyric the best lyric to come up with? Is that the best arrangement? I think a few times I just sort of was like, nah, I feel good about that. And, and all that's happened now is that a bit more humility as you get older, a bit more sort of um, appreciation and gratitude. And you go, well, if I want the most out of this, I better make sure it's right. So I, f- I feel more detailed and, and more... Um, I make make it harder to please myself. You know what I mean? Before I'd be like, ah, he's going to put a great line on that. Oh, that's going to be wicked. I can come that in feedback or, you know, doesn't matter. You know, and, and, and the truth is everything matters. And so I think that's why we've managed to do these new records, last few records, where we're really gaining momentum and literally becoming just a better band as we learn more. I mentioned I love the sound of this album, like specifically just the way all of these songs crash in. It sounds so great. What is a perfect sounding album for you sonically? Uh, White Pony, Deftones, uh, Sex Pistols, never mind the bollocks, because it just holds up uh, Bone Machine, uh, Surf Rosa, the Pixies, um, they, they, and the uh, Zeppelin. Yep. I mean, Zeppelin is it's remarkable, you know, they just hold up. The clarity is just is stunning. And uh, so those things, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, conversely, you go back and you check other things and you're like, damn, those hi-hats are high. Or, wow, that vocal was so loud. People did make big choices, you know, they made big choices and songs we know and love um, that when you analyze them and you use it yourself, you go, I'm not having my hi-hats that loud. Really <laughs> yeah. I don't like hardware. I like, I like. You have to have hardware to create excitement. But it, so many records have like louder hi hats than the fucking, you know, than the guitars or the voice or you know, it's just like, oh my god, what were you thinking? You know, um, you know, I always think you listen to like um, only on the subject. I love the Kings of Leon, but if you listen to that song, uh, 
Whoa. Like, that's Coldplay. Um, one of those major songs. <laughs> brilliant songs. And I'm saying because I love them. So I want to put it in the right context. I love them. And the whoa, when they had that massive record, Use Somebody, that, that whole record, right? When you listen to those mixes, those, whoa, those woes are so quiet. You can't believe they're in the studio going, that's fucking great. They must be like, hey, can the, turn the woes up. They're wicked. I mean, it didn't affect their success. But in terms of a record-making level, when you isolate, listen to that mix, you'd be like, well, if you mix it today, I bet you'd turn those O's up. That's always weird to say that, that I was like, how did they get away with it? And I loved that song. And so what's weird is that it didn't really matter to me. It, it mattered more when I isolated, listened to it. Because what well, I'd be like, well, singing with it like a moron, because I loved it. But actually, when I listened to it, I was like, oh, I wonder if they would turn those. Because that's a great band. That's a really, what a singer. Fantastic singer. Now, you've had the pleasure of being around a lot of great rock stars and musicians over the years. I want to ask you, does one come to mind as the funniest? If I asked you, who's the funniest rock star or musician that you've met and dealt with and conversed with? Chris and my band is really funny. And uh, we humor is the cornerstone of everything in our world. You know, we, we have like, we have some really good times um, in the band. Um, but I think, oh my God, you know who? Who? James Blunt. Really? James Blunt. The funniest fucker. I sat next to him. It was uh, David Furnish, Elton John's husband's birthday party. And I sat next to him. And uh, he told me some great stories. Um, he used to be uh, a, uh, in the Queen's Guard, right? He was a soldier going around. In England, we have a... We have this thing called the royal family, right? And there's like the pomp and ceremony of the royal family is big in England, right? And a uh, big tourist attraction. They're like they're like Ben, they're like ben and Jerry's in England, right? Royalty. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he, there was a coronation or some big event, right? And so these the horsemen. He was a horseman for uh, uh, the Queen, Queen's cavalry. They're in Hyde Park in London. Any any of your tourist listeners will know it, right? And they, for six months, they train these horses to go round and round this track, right? So that when they go on the day with the Queen or the TV, with everyone in England watching and, you know, expats in Jamaica or wherever the fuck, um, uh, the horses behave, you know, like they're in a formation. And so he was doing this and he was in a formation like an, like a, like an arrow. And he said, um, he was going and his horse got spooked you know so it just jutted out in front of the queen right on the big wall after six months of training and he looked at her all scared and she looked around at him and she goes will you get back he's <laughs> telling me all this thing he's a funny guy anyway anyway so he's he's funny he's he's good lad he says some funny things about his audience which i can't repeat because it's not fair but it was, yeah. it was very funny He's funny guy. That's uh, a good answer. He lives in Ibiza. Oh yeah, he knows a good time. This guy. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, so this did you ever see his tweets? Like you know, he, what was a couple of years ago? You know, if you thought this year was bad, I'm releasing a record next year. He does all <laughs> yeah. that. He's that guy. He's super self-deprecating. Really funny. He's a great guy. I really. I had one evening with him, and I, and I had so much fun. With him. A memorable one, yeah. 
So this show is called My Mom's Basement. On the show, we talk about some nerdy things, some things that make us geek out from time to time. And I wanted to bring up, there's a great Bush song on the soundtrack of the Avengers movie, Into the Blue. Came out about 10 years ago at this point, over 10 years ago now. You also have a a song on the soundtrack of The Crow 2, City of Angels, another comic book character. Any memories of those two songs? Well, just that you're, you're happy they found a home. I love that song, Into the Blue, again. I love, I, I really like that song. And you don't know whether you put it behind, you know, when you put it into a film, you know, we had, um, you know, John Wick had bullet holes. So, you know, it's just, it's just like fun by association. I mean, you know, obviously with Randall Lee, that was an extreme tragedy. And, and, and uh, so it's not a great memory of that because, you know, Randall Lee lost his life. So that's pretty awful. So thanks for that. But uh, no, it was the no. second movie. He wasn't in that one. <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, good, good, good. No, good. no, 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 no. That. I was like terrible. Yeah, it was the um, sequel. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring up old wounds like that. Nah, no, it's okay. It's okay. I had to. No, I could not mention it. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Great songs, though. I, mean, I think. Well, I think. Thank you. I think with those songs, you know, you just get. Um, I love having songs in movies. I want to have a song with Amy to be in a movie because it's so romantic. I mean, I'm just on it. I just happen to be there. She's the one that makes it fucking crazy. I'm just like, it made me, I, I got, she, I asked her to sing with me, right? I said, hey, you want to sing this song? We're going to be in your hometown in a couple of weeks. And I, uh, she goes, well, I, um, I'm just flying back that day, so I don't know if you can do the song, but I want to come to the show. I thought that was a really polite, classy no. You know what I mean? I thought that was really sweet. So I sent her the song anyway, because I'm a salesman. And so I was like, fuck it, let's see if she likes it. And she sent it back with a vocal on it. Wow. I mean, it, I, honestly, I, it, I, I, I got goosebumps, tears in my eyes. Just, just couldn't believe that I was associated with something so good. Because it was like she gave us real class. She's a powerhouse. Yeah, she's unbelievable. One of the best vocalists of her generation, I would say. So I saw your Zane Lowe interview recently where you talked about like kind of running to America away from Britpop when Oasis and everything was going huge. Did you ever actually have like run-ins with that scene though at that time or were you guys yeah, completely 100%. separated? No, 100% because where I live in London, I mean, I live in America now with my kids, but I have we keep a place there. And my house was 100 feet from the pub called the Queens where everyone would go there was a a recording studio in my little it's a village actually where i live primrose hill village but it's like a little village and there was a great recording studio there and um actually it wasn't great but it was really fun studios and so there was always blur primal screen oasis suede it was stupid i mean it was real that was a real scene and uh they'd go to that pub and everyone would be hanging out and everyone would end up at Noel's house up the road. I went to Noel's house a few times. It was like, I'm more of a sort of a, I have that lone wolf thing. So I kind of knew the scene. I knew everyone, but could have passed by and have a couple of evenings with them. But then I was always away on tour. So I wasn't like uh, part of the scene, but I know it's like Nelly Hooper, the English DJ, you know, produced, you know, York and Massive Attack and all of that. So that whole London scene, that London crowd, I just was part of it, you know, it just wasn't the music. I liked, I liked, I liked it too guitar-y. I like sort of post-punk and I like punk music. And I don't mean SoCal punk, I mean real punk music. I mean traditional punk music. So it was like, I couldn't find the, um, 
I like my bloody Valentine. I liked throwing muses. I like band on 4AD, the Pixies. So they were the cool bands, you know, um, to me. And um, so, the, uh, you know, I never like, I never got into the kinks. That's the basis of all Britpop was the kinks, I think. Is that? Yeah. You know? And and it's a certain sound. Um, and some, they do it really so, so well. I mean, those, those bands are amazing. I mean, you know, obviously no ridiculous songs. I mean, really incredible. Uh, one of some of the best melodies of all time in pop music. It's really, really good and a lot better as Oasis. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Two of these sort of like entities. Uh, okay. You're preaching to the choir. You know, I'm, I'm with you. I think I'm with the rest of the world where I'm like, you guys are both crushing it out there. You're both selling out, right? Why don't you just get together and then we could sell out arenas and stadiums again. And, you know, I think, I think, I think I, I read it um, a few years ago. So it may have changed his tune a little bit because I saw the documentary. He, yeah. he showed the first bit of humility that I didn't know yet. But uh, I did read that he would rather eat shit than tour with his brother again. <laughs> It's like, what an image. You know what, though? I just saw he did an interview. It came out, and he said, never say never. And I was like, oh, softening up on that one, maybe. Who knows? Well, they'll go for They'll get a tremendous. They'll, they, they can do a stadium tour. They've, they've played yeah. it so well. It's like what, what, two years away from a stadium tour, and they just have the last laugh. It's the same thing Guns N' Roses did a couple of years ago, right? They got gang back together, and it went crazy. This is a bit of a generic question. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but I am genuinely curious as to what your answer would be. What are the first songs that come to mind when I ask you what's a song that you wish you would have written? I mean, I just read the Bono biography. Oh, yeah. So, you know, something like uh, Where the Streets Have No Name or One, (laughs) With or Without You. It struck me how important that band are to me. Um, I think that uh, I was honored to record Heroes with with uh, David Bowie's uh, uh, piano player, Mike Garson. We did on the. I did it for a music care charity for him. I did a um, an event for him. So any Bowie song, I would take. You know, I'm afraid of Americans. I did for a Bowie tribute. Uh, after he passed away, he had this whole thing where they had it all Bowie alumni, all the people who played on his records, and, and they had guest vocalists come in and sing. Literally the most nerve wracking gig I've ever done by a thousand miles. I mean, Amy ruined my day. Me going to see <laughs> Amy, like, because I have a little solo in that song. So I was like, don't fuck up the solo. I'd been fine on solo all tour, and I'd fucked it up a couple of times. And just me and tracks. And so when I fuck up a solo, it's just like, oh, well, it is live. Bless yeah. him. <laughs> so, you know, twice, I just had two epic. Well, one, I came in off the one, so I just sounded jazzy. And one, I just flumped the first phrase. It was like, bleh, 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 bleh. and then I got my shit together. So it's just like, <laughs> so the, it makes me nervous performing with other people, having a responsibility and having a responsibility to Bowie and to his band. And just, yeah. just I, I, it was two nights at the Wilton and I was so traumatized by the first night, like traumatized, I couldn't speak, traumatized that I did my song, went great. And then I just got in the car and went home. And then I suddenly was at home at 9.20 going, 
look, what about everyone else that's performing? Why did you leave? It's <laughs> a complete uh, anxious uh, social uh, anxiety breakdown. And then so the next night we played and I watched everyone. I hung out. I relaxed. I had a couple of drinks. I was like, fuck's sake. This is not, you know, enjoy your life. So the next night I... I did it. I did a 180 and had a really good time. But the first night I left my own device because I, I was very anxious. So anything by Bowie. I actually got to see that Mike Garson. He took a tribute on tour where in every city he would go to, he'd bring up new people and stuff. And I went to the one in New York City, brought up Corey Glover from Live in Color to do a couple things, brought up yeah. Sting's son to do a couple things. It was a really tremendous concert and tour and everything yeah. like that. Mike Garson knows how to put on a, a good tribute, you know? Yeah, he's mainly we're talking about. He's doing these um, solo shows, well, duo shows, I guess. Uh, uh, piano, Bowie piano songs. Yeah. He's had Luke from the Struts doing it. He's done a couple of those. So it's 100 people. And so he's asked me to do one next year. What was it? Uh, would be this year. Jesus Christ. He asked me last <laughs> year. So I, gotta, I, I need to figure out when to do that. I absolutely adore Mike. And I've done. He's played on a song with Bush, and I did a song for him for Music Cares, both on the um, the Kingdom Deluxe versions. And like for me, my voice next to Mike Garza's playing is it's like a mic drop. It's a mic it's drop. Perfect. Yeah, great combination. Like, it's a bit like a bit like we're same feeling with um, being um, with Amy. It's that sort of thing where you. You know, if you align yourself with people that are way better than you, some of your parts goes drastically upwards. You, go, you raise your, you raise your value. Like, what's up? I got Mike. What's up? I got Amy. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm in a hot air balloon. I'm miles above you now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. My final question. I'm going to wrap it back around to Oasis. Noel Gallagher once said that he summed up everything that he's ever wanted to say as a person with cigarettes and alcohol rock and roll star and live forever. He says after that point, he's just repeating himself, rephrasing it. If you had to pick three songs that you've written that sum up everything you've wanted to say, which three would you select? I don't want to come back down from this cloud because I think it shows a desire to live a full, exciting life and always aim for the best. Um, uh, heavy is the ocean. I mean, I've got so many words I can say, but these are the first things come to my mind. Yeah. Because I shared a shared weight, a weight, a, a, a pressure that is shared is um, inevitably lessened, you know, and support is, support is everything, you know. Um, so heavy is the ocean. And then um, I got a line from a record, a song that I wrote um, was called Bulletproof Skin. I wrote it for uh, Institute, but I'm also going to redo some Institute songs for Bush because I realized I should. Yeah. And I have time. I'm really going to do that for the next record because I did that record and lots of people who know music love it and most people never heard it. So I was like, you see, um, I see people like um, Neil Young and Dylan would have a song that would appear on three or four records. And I was like, what the fuck? Why, why am I like slaving over a hot studio? Why don't I incorporate some of this? So in Bulletproof Spring, I have this line, to lose you is to never love again. And I, 
I just was really proud of that lyric, you know. Um, so there you go. They're not necessarily like one's a big song and one album track and one other track, but it's just those words that first thing I thought of. I'll get off the phone and be like, what's his number? I've got some fucking other ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Those are three great answers. And this okay. has been a really great time to get down to sit down with you and pick your brain on this stuff. Uh, like I said, I really love the new album. So make sure everyone goes checks it out. Bushofficial.com. You can get all the dates and everything like that. Merch, everything that you need to know about the band. Gavin, thank you very much for joining the show today. Thanks for your time. I enjoyed this a lot. I did a lot of these. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Appreciate it.